Romans. <clears throat> I told you that uh, the way that you, uh, you know, break Romans down, which is a very, very complicated book as you, as you look at it, but the way that you understand the book of Romans is seeing the natural breakdown that uh, exists within the book. And I showed you that when you study Romans, you want to study it in four sections. And uh, we have uh, taken that approach, and uh, we've just finished the first section. And I told you that section one went through chapter one through chapter five. And in the first section, we deal with the historical perspective. See, what do you mean by that? In that particular section, Paul begins to go back and lay out <coughs> and set a, a, the groundwork for where we're going to go in Romans. And if you remember, we, we looked at it from a historical perspective. And now we're going to enter into section 2. Section 2 will run chapters 6, 7, and 8. And in these particular chapters, you're going to find the doctrinal section. What do you mean by that? The section that deals with your life and my life as a Christian. You've got to remember that the book of Romans is a book that really begins to uh, lay out the understanding of what you and I believe. And chapters 6, 7, and 8 are the paramount chapters in the book of Romans that deal with that, and we'll see that here in just a little bit. And section 3 will be chapters 9 through chapter 11. <clears throat> That'll be the prophetic section. That'll talk about God's future dealing with the nation of Israel and what God has got planned for that great nation. The fourth section will run from chapter 12 to chapter 16. And that will be the practical section. That section shows you how you deal with uh, everyday living. It shows you how you deal with relationships. It, it, it covers all the areas that we as Christians need to understand. Really, the book of Romans forms a complete balance for the child of God uh, as far as the New Testament Christian is concerned. It gives you the historical perspective that really shows you where it's all come from. It shows you the doctrinal perspective that shows you, you know, how it all, uh, all moves through and how it fits into your life as far as church teaching for the church. It shows you the future principles, how that God is not finished with the nation of Israel and what our perspective as a New Testament child of God should be toward that. And then it shows you how to survive uh, in everyday living on planet Earth. And it's, uh, you know, to me, the key is getting that perspective. And I, you know, for those of you that are interested in getting this book down, I suggest that you put that outline, if you haven't already, <coughs> somewhere in your Bible uh, and maybe break it down at the individual sections also so that when you begin to read it, you can take and keep that in your mind of how you're going to learn it. Now, we learned from the first section, chapter 1 through 5, a, a basic historical background from Romans. We found in those chapters that salvation now is by grace, by the grace of God, uh, through faith, without no works involved. We now know that, there's, that in the Old Testament, uh, in chapter 1, he talked about how that the Gentiles in the Old Testament, they found God through uh, their conscience and how that now in Romans, God doesn't work that way anymore. We saw in chapter 2 how that the Jews found God in the Old Testament based on their relationship to the law that God had given them through Moses. And now we've seen in that chapter that uh, that doesn't work anymore. Then we saw in chapter 3, 4, and 5 that what does work, and this is where the difference is between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that now in the New Testament, and this is what Romans begins to lay out, this is why it has to have a historical section, now in the New Testament, the aspect of you and I, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you have to get God's righteousness imputed to you. And the only way you get that 
is by faith in what Christ did on the cross and asking him to come into your heart and to save you. And at that particular point in time, that's where uh, you get salvation. We looked at two great men's lives. One of them was David. The other one was Abraham. We saw that both of them represented from two different aspects what we got in Christ. David got God's righteousness when he didn't deserve it. Abraham got God's righteousness by faith through grace uh, without any works involved. And we looked at that, and I showed you how that the historical section and understanding it is built around those two men's lives. Remember last week? Last week we took the last aspect of imputed righteousness, and we showed you how it applies to your children. And we put that aspect all together. And, uh, you know, when it comes to learning the Bible, and I know that there's a number of you here that, that really are trying to get the Bible down, and we saw it in the Institute last night, you know, as we're working through the book of Acts and beginning to get that book down. Really the key is finding out how the Bible divides itself out. When God wrote the Bible, He put some natural divisions in that Bible. Obviously, one of the big divisions is the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's an easy one to see. But within the Old Testament alone, there's different divisions. Within the New Testament alone, there's different divisions. You want to understand those uh, divisions, find the right breakdown of how that thing works. Not only does the whole Bible work that way, but each book of the Bible works that way. You will find that when I teach you with a book of the Bible, the first thing I will do will give you the natural outline. In my life, I realized this very early in life, and even though I didn't understand where they all broke down and I had I did have some problems putting them together. Through the course of 15 or 20 years of my life, I broke down those individual books as God breaks them down. And the books became much easier for me to get, much easier for me to learn and understand. And the hardest books in the Bible, the hardest books in the Bible, I would think in the New Testament anyhow, would be Romans and would be Acts. And for those of you in Institute last night, I showed you how that Acts is so easy once you get the right breakdown. Romans is so easy once you get the right breakdown. It basically, when you get the right breakdown of each book, it takes the mystery out away from it. And then you just deal with each section as you deal with it. I told, told the kids last night, and I, I tell you guys this on Thursday night Bible study, if you want to understand the book of the Bible, here's what you do. Find God's natural division. In the Bible, this is called rightly dividing the word of truth. Find the natural division. Take the first section, take Romans. Take the first section, you know what it is now. Take the first section, isolate it from the other three. Look at it, study it, understand it, get a handle on it. Put it over here. Then get the second section. That's what we're entering into today. Learn it, understand it, get it together, and then set it over here. Then get the third section. Isolate it. Look at it, understand every concept of it, put it over here. Get the fourth section, study it, learn it. Now you have an understanding independently of all three sections of the book of Romans or whatever book you're studying. You know what you do then? You take all four pieces, get your little drill gun out, and zip, 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 and you bolt them back together. Now you have a complete understanding of the book broken down by sections. When somebody asks me a question on Thursday night about the Bible or you ask me a question when you come over to my home and you ask me about a book of the Bible, the first thing that goes through my mind is that, Bible, that book of the Bible, how it divides itself out. And that's how you learn the Bible. And, of course, Romans is the exact same way. Now, in chapters 6, 7, and 8, in this second section here, uh, this is called the doctrinal section. And uh, this, is called, this section is called the great death chapters. And this is very important for you to understand some of the preliminary stuff about these chapters. This is called the great death chapters. 
and it basically forms what you and I believe in the church age now that Christ has died on the cross. And we're going to lay a framework today so you can begin to understand how this, this death of Christ, you keep reading, the death of Christ, the death of Christ, the death of the Christian. In your Bible, and this is the first thing you want to recognize and get down in your mind, in your Bible there are three kinds of death. You've got to understand this. There are th when the Bible talks about death in the Bible, there's three kinds of death. The first kind of death is physical death. And we see this with the death of Lazarus or the death of John the Baptist. It's physical death. People are going to be born, they're going to grow up, and they're going to die. Genesis chapter 5, verse 5, Adam, the Bible says, and, and Adam is such and such years old and such, and he died. There's physical death in the Bible. That's your first time of death, type of death. Then there's a second type of death in the Bible, and it's spiritual death. Spiritual death is you dying and going to hell. That would be found in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where it says the wages of sin is death. See? Now that doesn't mean physical death there. That's spiritual death. You see, there's three kinds of death. There's when you die, right now, if you kick the bucket, fall over here, you're dead physically. And then there's... Some people maybe are in here this morning or people that you work with or people that you know that are not saved. The Bible says that they are dead in trespasses of sin. What does that mean exactly? It means as far as God's concerned, and you want to get this definition, it's very important. It means as far as God's concerned, even though they're walking around, they're dead as far as God is concerned. They have no relationship with God. They have no fellowship with God. Bible says in the Gospel of John, I think it's chapter 9, that God does not even hear their prayers. And they're in an unsaved state. And in an unsaved state, God, even though they're walking around, partying, laughing, driving cars, going to work every morning, as far as God's concerned, they are dead in trespasses of sin. That's why the Bible says that the wages of your sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's the second type of death. Then there's a third kind of death. And that third kind of death is the death that we're going to talk about in the book of Romans, chapter 6, 7, and 8. That's the death of a Christian. Not physical, spiritual, but not in the sense of dying and going to hell. Here's how it works. When Christ died on the cross and He came out of the grave, when he come out of the grave after he died on the cross, the Bible says that he had the keys of death and hell. Because of that, the Bible says that you and I don't have to die spiritually anymore. We now have the ability to, uh, to become alive in Christ Jesus. And when you start to come through chapter 6, 7, and 8, it all shows you and I that Christ's death on the cross when you trust Christ as your own personal Savior, now you have the ability to be dead to the things of this world, but alive unto God. Now, I believe, and, you know, I work with most of you in here, and I, and I, I, I work with you in ways that, we, that you're trying to get where you're going in the Bible and trying to get your life where God wants it to be. And I appreciate the fact that the majority of people in our church really want to do what God wants to do, if not all of them. And I'm speaking from the people that I know that I work with, that I, that, I, that I work with on a weekly or bi-weekly basis, or you're being discipled or someplace around the line. But let me tell you something. 
I'm going to talk to you today about one of the great unknown doctrines of the Bible. And it's because nobody ever teaches it anymore. And it's because you don't understand how it applies into your life. But I want to tell you something to you this morning. Christianity is a defeated thing. I have never seen more despair in God's people's lives uh, because of the fact that after they get saved, they still struggle and they still have the problems in their lives that, that keep pulling them down. I got news for you, folks. If you're saved here this morning, sin, in God's mind, has no more dominion over you. You know what the victorious Christian life is? The victorious Christian's life is you getting saved, living in a sinful world, but that sin having absolutely zero impact on your life. Now, who in the world understands that today? Who in the world is a child of God even looks at their life that way? How many of God's people, and ask yourself this question, and I'm not blaming you because you're going to know now after I teach you this this morning, but how many of God's people could really stand up this morning and say, you know what, when it talks about the death of a Christian being dead to the world, let me tell you how that works in my life. Now, you know why we struggle with things? You know why we allow things to get to us? You know why some of you, bless your hearts, you go, your whole Christian walk is uphill. You struggle thing after thing after thing in your life. And yet, God doesn't want you to be that way. He wants you to be victorious. He wants you to have the victory over everything in your life. And today, I want to show you, before we ever get into Romans chapter 6, I want to define for you what this spiritual death means in your life that you don't have to be under the domination of sin anymore in your life. You can have a victorious Christian life. You can have everything that God wants for you, but you have to understand the process that God has enacted when He died on the cross. So these chapters are going to be, now that Christ died on the cross, and you now got saved, your life is hid in Christ's death. And if you understand that great concept, just as he had the power to overcome sin. You now, I now have the power to live a victorious Christian life. The difference is simply this. He was sinless. You and I will never be sinless. But you and I can live without sin in our lives having dominion over us. And you know what? It's, it's, it's one of the greatest concepts that you'll ever, you'll ever have where Romans chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 showed that salvation in the New Testament was made possible by, the grace, of, uh, by grace through Christ's death and then Him imputing righteousness to us. Romans 6, 7, and 8 shows that uh, what happens when you got saved, how it affects you as a Christian. Chapter 1 through 5 showed you and I that, that, uh, that we were dead in sin. And that's basically, if you want a, just a, a small capsule to understand these two sections, chapter 1 through 5 shows you and I that we were dead in sin. Chapters 6, 7, and 8 show you now that you are saved, you are dead to sin. Sin doesn't have to have an effect on you anymore. Chapter 6 shows that Christ's death on the cross in relationship to my spiritual death as a Christian. Chapter 7 shows that Christ's death on the cross has made now made me dead to the law of sin. Chapter 8 shows that Christ's death on the cross, how it applies to me 
in my redemption of my body, both physically and spiritually, and un- helps me understand how I am, I am dead to the things of this world. Now, I realize, I understand totally, and that's why I'm going to take my time this morning, and we can work through this throughout the next couple of weeks as you have to in your individual lives, but I want you to understand this concept, and I fully understand, in most cases, it's a f- totally foreign concept of this thing of being dead in Christ and understanding the three types of death in the Bible. Let me simplify it. We know now that before you and I got saved, the determining factor that really made you a saved person was simply this. You have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. You're a triotomy. You're like God. He's a trinity. And you have a body, you have a soul, and you have a spirit. We've talked about it before, and I've detailed them out in great length. And you don't, we won't go through it today. If you want to study it out, you can get it on the website on one of those sections in there. But we know this. Before you were saved, here's the problem. Your flesh right here is very sinful. It's wicked. I don't know if you know it or not, but your flesh is not going to heaven. Your flesh is going to go down to the ground where it came from, and after about six months, you know what, or a year, four or five years or whatever, uh, you're going to go back to the dust from whence you came. Something else. This flesh is the number one problem you got. It, it, it hangs on you like a cheap suit. <laughs> it, 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 it causes you every problem that you have in life. Now, your soul is the eternal part of you. And your soul, when you die, is going one place or the other. If you're, if you're saved, your soul is going to heaven. Your body's going down to the grave. But if you're saved, your soul is going to heaven. If you're lost, your soul then is going to go to hell. It's that simple. Now, before you and I were saved, your flesh, which is sinful, and your soul, which is spiritual, were stuck together. They were one. They were stuck together. Whatever your flesh did affected your soul. That's what the Bible means when it says you are dead in the trespasses of sin. That's why when you died, your body went to the grave and your soul, which was stuck to that sinful uh, flesh, has to go to hell. It has never been redeemed. The eternal part of you has never been redeemed. Therefore, it is stuck to that flesh. Now, when you got saved, Colossians chapter 2, the operation of God made without hands, chapter 2, verse 11. The spiritual circumcision, the, the fact that God came in, and what really happened the day you got saved was God simply took your soul and your flesh, which was stuck together, and ripped them apart. Now you got an old nature, and you got a new nature. Not only did he rip it apart, But the soul part of you, the Holy Spirit of God came in and took up residency inside your body. And then like like sealing something with a hot seal, the Bible says that you were sealed under the day of redemption. By the way, if you understand what I'm talking to you about this morning and you ever grasp this truth, you will never think for a second that you could ever lose your salvation. The reason why people think they can lose their salvation is because you don't understand the process by which you got saved first. If you understand your salvation and you understand what happened when you got saved, you can't even remotely get to losing it. But that's another subject. But what happened when you got saved is God separated your flesh from your soul. Now you're two people. Paul calls it the old man and the new man. The old nature and the new nature. The old nature 
now will 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 do everything that it did before. It's not shame. It's going to give you all kinds of fit. The new nature is now your power of God in your life that through the recognition of that new nature and through understanding how that thing works in your life, you now have the power and the ability to recognize that that soul is sealed in the death of Christ on the cross. Thereby, your now soul now is dead or can be dead to the things of this world if you understand what I'm talking about. This single message this morning could revolutionize your Christian life if you're paying attention. If you're paying attention. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how an unsaved man has absolutely no power, no strength in his life. He can't change anything about him. Why? Because they are stuck together. Once he gets saved, he has the ability to change through the Word of God, the Spirit of God, to change everything about him that he wants to change, and he can become everything that God wants him to be because he now has God's strength, and he can change, and he can do it if he understands how to use it. I could put a million dollars in your bank account. I could just put a million dollars in your bank account. But if you never learned how to write a check, if you never learned how to use the banking system, you'll never get a dime out of that thing. When I deal with people about the Lord, you know what I tell them? I bring them to a point, and this may be a good illustration you can use. I'll bring them up to a point where they know they need to be saved. And I'll say to them, I'll say, you know what, Tom, John, Bill, Ralph, Mary, Sue, you know, whatever. You know what? If I won the lottery and I just found out I had a $275 million and I really felt sorry for you because you're a good person and I, I want to help you out in life and I picked one person I want to give a million dollars to and it was you. And I said, you know what? I'm going to give you a million dollars. And you would be so excited. And I wrote it a check, put your name in it, signed it. It's all ready to go. And I gave you that check for a million dollars. You'll be on the cell phone calling your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your, your husband, your wife, whatever. And you'd be saying, whoo, Bob just gave me a million dollars. You know what? We're going to pay this off. We're going to do this. We're going to go on a vacation. We're going to buy a new car. We're going to get this. We're going to get that. We're going to do all of these things. But the truth of the matter is, unless you go to the bank and cash the check, you ain't got anything. And many of you as God's people this morning, God has got a billion trillion dollars in the bank for you and you're holding the check in your hand you just simply don't know how to get to the bank to cash it this message will help you understand that there's an oil crisis in America or so they say I do know this 65% of our oil we have we're dependent on our enemies to give it to us I don't know what to tell you Dependency is never a good thing. We in America are dependent on not only our enemies, but Israel's enemies. In other words, they got a, they got a carrot over our head here. And the bottom line is this. In times to come, and of course, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I talked about the aspect of facts or, or knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Well, I mean, I mean, I guarantee you that when this thing is shaping up, the oil is going to play a vital part in what America does. And if you didn't know that, you had to go over to read Revelation chapter 6, verse 6. We're right in the middle of the tribulation period. He makes a very weird statement about not hurting the oil. 
And he's not talking about olive oil, Popeye's girlfriend, or he's not talking about Wesson oil. Uh, he's talking about the oil in the Middle East and how that's going to figure into this thing. But the bottom line is this. We are now dependent way over our heads with the very enemies who hate us, who want to destroy us, who by their own religion have a standard by which they want to dominate the world and make it what they believe and who absolutely hate Israel. And we are totally at, in, in, in a disadvantage because if they turned off the spigot, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We have, we have played the game so long in this country of not doing what we needed to do, and now we have found ourselves in a very bad situation. Now, personally, I mean, let me give you a little understanding here. I believe that's by God's design. I mean, I believe this thing is over, and we're just, we're, we're, you know, we're, our elevators just about hit the basement. So, I mean, it's a, it's a thing. If you think this $700 million bailout is going to fix anything, you're crazy. You know what it's going to fix? It's going to fix a lot of politicians going to skim it off the top. You know what it's going to be like? Remember back there when they had Katrina, 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 excuse me, I didn't mean to spit on you. Katrina, it's holy spittle, you can be blessed the rest of the day. Katrina, remember what happened? The, the stadium down there was, was crowded with people and they were defecating all over the stadium down there and, uh, and it was one big mess. And so the federal government comes in. You know what Ronald Reagan said? Ronald Reagan says the most terrible words in the English language are, hi, I'm from the federal government, I'm here to help. So the feds get involved in it through FEMA. See, they go down there, and what do they have? They have these little plastic cards that were $2,000 or $1,200. They pass them out to Katrina victims. Now, keep in mind, there's no place to go spend them. Everything's been, but they give them to you, and everybody gets a $1,200 credit card from the government. When it was all said and done, they wound up missing about $200 million of that money that nobody where it went. I know where it went. I know exactly where it went. See, I know exactly where it's at. But the bottom line is this. That's not the way you run it. And when you get into something as corrupt as our government is, and you give them $700 billion to people who are already corrupt, and, I mean, the CEOs are making $27 million a year, and that's just for tips. I mean, give me a break. Where do you think it's going to wind up? Bottom line is this, I'm okay with it all. You say you're upset. No, I'm just excited because I got the new building over there. We're going to get to go eat my favorite place today. I mean, I've got a lot of good things I'm excited about. I'm okay with the whole thing. Let her rip. Let her rip. Let her rip. Let her rip. And, uh, but I'm just saying, we're in a mess. And now we're not only dependent on, on foreign oil, but now we as an American society is, is dependent on the federal government. I'd much rather take my chance with the Saudis and the oil. But the, what my point is this. Dependency, ladies and gentlemen, is not a good thing. This country is in the mess that it's in because it will not become independent. You know we got more oil in our country than the Saudi Arabia's got everywhere around this place? You know, we, if we just did what we needed to do, we could tell them to go take a long walk up a short pier and we'd have all the gas in the world. I think instead of coming up with all these fuel-efficient cars and all these hydrogen cars, they ought to just get a car that runs on hot air and we could fill it up in Washington the only time we wanted to. That's my idea on it. Dependency on somebody else for your oil and your money and your finances is bad. But i got to add to that, dependency on somebody else for your walk with God as a Christian is not very good either. And that's the problem we're facing, not only in the world, but in Christianity. It's hard to separate the two. 
Now the Democrats say, uh, you know, we're not going to, the Republicans say, let's, let's, let's drill right now. You know, drill, baby, drill. And the, and the, and the Democrats say, no, we're not going to drill. And somebody say, well, why? Because the oil company already has rights to millions and millions and millions and millions of acres they're not drilling on. So, you know what, we're not going to give them anymore because they're not using what they got. I mean, it's not the federal government anymore. It's now comes down to the level of a, a fourth grade class in kindergarten. That's what we got. Bottom line is this. It ain't going to happen either way. Because the oil companies, first of all, they want to make as much money as they can. They're not going to go drill someplace that gives them a lot of hard work and it's not convenient. They want to go someplace where they can get it right now. On top of that, you got too many tree huggers out there. You got many two people that don't want to ruin the don't, don't want to ruin the water for the whales. You got too many people out. I mean, you're going to die and you're going to lose your economy, but the whales are going to say, Ooh, I'm having a good day today. See? Somebody said one time, I heard a debate. Lady get up and she says, we cannot pass to drill in Alaska or Anwar simply because we're going to ru ruin the habitat of the caribou mating grounds. Get a room, man. I don't care. I live in South, Ken South Raytown, 8308 Woodson Drive. That's where I live. Now, let me tell you something. I come out to go take the dogs out the other morning on my street. On my street, runs all the way up. It's a cul-de-sac, whatever that is. It runs all the way up. And there I'm walking out there, and I look down the road, and right in the middle of the road is a big deer looking at me. In the middle of the road. I mean, standing right there looking at me. Now, that deer had another one come out with three little behind it. Now, those houses have been there for probably 35 years. It didn't get into their mating problems. You know what you got a problem in Overland Park? You know what it is? You know, Overland Park, they got all those uppity uppity people. They got them little rat faced dogs. They don't have real dogs. Come to my house, I got some real dogs. I got some real, well, I kind of got some. I got two downstairs of the real dog. I got one upstairs that's a rat with a genetic defect. His name is Otis. I love Otis. Otis, I keep Otis around because he reminds me a lot of preachers. He really does. He's got a yappy little mouth, and he thinks he's a lot bigger than he is. You ought to see in the morning when I get up to go downstairs to get the real dogs out. Now, I got two labs. I just lost my, my oldest lab a couple of weeks ago. We won't talk about that. But I got two labs. I got Buddy. Buddy's the big old brown boy. He's about 110 pounds. He's about that high. And Buddy, Buddy can be a problem if he wants to be. Then I got a little white one named Daisy. She's not so little. She's probably 86, 80 pounds, something like that. But Daisy's problem is she thinks the world revolves around her. Now, Buddy's a man, and Daisy's a woman. So, I mean, that fits naturally, does it? What woman doesn't think the world revolves around her? That's okay. That's okay. I am for it. I'm not against you. The world does revolve around you, ladies. I mean, after all, we wouldn't be in the mess if it wasn't for you. So, <laughs> so just, <laughs> just, you know, you want to play the game, want to pitch the ball? Let's go all the way and throw a fast one right down the strike line, Okay. Now, now I feel better. I got that on my system. I'm really feeling better now. Here we go. Every morning I go down. Now, Buddy's got this thing, uh, and I don't know what it is. Buddy's got this thing that he thinks that, I, he, that I'm everything to him. And, you, you know, and so what happens is about, I don't know what time it is. I'm going to hook a camera up. He gets out of the pen down there. He figures his way out, and he'll come up halfway up the cellar steps, and he'll sit on the cellar steps looking down. Now, his idea is he's keeping the other dogs from coming up the step because he wants to be the first one to see me when I come down. He'll sit on that step for hours. It's got to be uncomfortable. His rear end is as big as a two-seat bus. I mean, and the step's not that wide. 
And he's sitting on that thing, and he just sits down there, and he just watches. And he looks over. Every time I open the door, he's looking over the shoulder at me. Well, I go down to feed him, and then once they know I'm up, then the other dog comes up. Buddy's kind of stupid, by the way. He does not know that there's still sides on it. You can get around him, and, and so little Daisy works her way up there. And so little Otis, little Otis, who's about that big, goes into this tirade like she's going to take these two dogs on. I mean, she is, she's biting the door. She's giving that high-pitched little yap sound that they all give. She's scratching like this, like she's going to do something. Now, she don't have a very good memory because it was just about a year ago when she was little small that we, we had a miscommunication. And, I, and Barb had Maddie, and, and, and she had Otis out on the leash, and I didn't know she was in the backyard, so I took my dogs out to go up the back. Well, yes, yes, that's where it went, exactly where it went. Buddy and Daisy got, got Otis each end in the mouth and was playing tug-of-war with her, you know. And, and Barb got baby in her hand, holds the dog up like this, on his, you know, dog now being hung by its own master, you know. And, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm doing everything I can. I ripped the skin off my knees. I was bleeding profusely because I'm trying to fight 200-pound dogs off this little dog. And I finally get her up. And get the other dogs off. And she's bleeding, you know, and everything. And, and I get her up. And just as I give her to Barb, the big one comes through the air. <laughs> takes her right out of my hand. And the scenario starts over again. Now, you think Otis would know that. No. No, 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 no. Otis is like most preachers. They can't figure it out either. There's bigger people out there who will bite you. And so, so you know, Otis is yapping and everybody, and my dogs think that they, they own the world. They know they're in their own little world right there. They think it's all them. And I'm telling you, when you look at this world today, we got people that are the same way. They look at, all they see is their surroundings. All they see is what they have. They don't look outside the perimeter at all. And their own little world just gets around like my little guys, where it's just what they're doing downstairs in the basement. That's all the world that they know. And some of God's people are exactly the same way. And we get dependent. We get dependent on things uh, and, and instead of being dependent on God. The Republicans say, they say, drill right now. The Dems say, no, no, no. Bottom line is this. We got too many people that are looking out there and seeing all the stuff that's going on and they're saying, we got we to gotta, we gotta save uh, uh, all this land for the animals. Overland Park, I've been again to tell you. Overland Park. You know what the big problem is in Overland Park where they don't have real dogs like my guys? You put your little puppy out in the backyard, and he's having a good time. Big coyote comes in and eats your dog. Coyotes. Well, I thought you had to be out in the wild, wild west for coyotes. Coyotes. You know there's a mountain lion over in Overton Park? Now, you may not believe it, but they've seen it. You know, I can just going to see it. You know, the woman says, oh, a mountain lion came down and ate my dog. Conservation guy comes out and says, no, I don't think so. Went up to check it out. Now, you never seen him for two years. What does it take? My point is this. You're telling me they don't get along with humans? I, at springtime, I go out in my backyard. I got a stretch of woods down there with houses on the other side. I can get a turkey call and call turkeys. They'll gobble back at me. I got raccoons getting in my trash. I got more squirrels than I got in this church in my backyard. <laughs> everywhere i go out in my backyard and there's four or five squirrels cussing me out 
You know how a squirrel cusses at you? How many know how a squirrel cusses at you? Oh, a couple of you. They do. They do. They do. And I'll tell you what, and you're going to tell me that they can't get along? Hey, they're getting along in my neighborhood. You see, it isn't about that. It's about politics. Bottom line is this. This church, this country is not going to change its stand and become independent. And this basic little current event issue is the reason why we don't get more from God in our lives. We're, just as our country will never lose its dependency on foreign oil and will ultimately lead to our demise and our disaster, so most of God's people will never become dependent on God and not be dependent on somebody else for their spirituality. Now, I'm going to tell you the truth. And I understand this totally. And I don't want to say what I just said without clarifying what I'm saying because there's a lot of people here on different levels of spirituality. When you first get saved or you first plug into the Bible, you need somebody to help you. God never intended a new Christian to be independent of the church. That's why when you get saved or you begin to plug in here, first thing I do is put you with some people. People that will disciple you. Put you into a small group that will help you. Because you are dependent. Just like when you have a baby, you don't just... Put that baby in the room and say, okay, get your room cleaned up, change your clothes, we're going to eat in a few minutes. You've got to constantly care for that baby. But as that baby grows, you can't do that, and it has to learn how to take care of itself. Same way with Christianity. I'm here to help you. I'm here to be for you whatever you need. That's my job. But part of my job is also not to let you stay a baby all of your life. If you went down to the nursery to pick up your kid, and there in one of our cribs down there was a 45-year-old man with a diaper on with his big legs hanging out of the thing and, and a bottle in his hand and a little thing around his head sucking on a bottle. And you said, hey, Ralph, how are you doing today? Well, I'm doing just fine. Good to see you. Ah, nice crib you got there. You know, wouldn't you think there's something wrong with that? Well, there would be something wrong with that, by the way. But yet in every church, you find it just that way. Men and women who ought to be farther along with God than they are and are still sucking on a bottle, wearing the diapers, and still struggling with the things that they should have got through because nobody helped them grow properly. I'm here to help you. I will give you whatever time it takes. You want to come over once a week, every other week? You want to come over and spend time and let me help you work through your issues? You need people in your life to help you get where you need to go? Hey, that's what this church is all about. But at some point in your life, ladies and gentlemen, you have to cease to be dependent and become independent. This nation will never do it. We're caught into an oil crisis that's going to sink us. We're caught into a financial crisis that's going to bury us by God's design. And my whole point of that is this. When it comes to the Bible, God is going to start with what you have right now and begin to develop you with that. You need to drill. This country needs to start getting rid of all the goofy stuff it's got and begin to drill right now every place we can and tell the Saudis to go take a long walk. But they won't do it. And I'm telling you, right now as a child of God, you need to begin drilling for God right now. This country won't do it because it's not convenient and we've got a lot of other agendas. And that's the same reason why God's people won't do it because you've got too many other things on your plate that you want to do and it doesn't include God and there lies the problem. That's why God's people will totally be dependent on somebody else for their spirituality and never get past the point where they really begin to grow. And this is the problem. Now I want to talk to you about some verses. And you know there's a number of you and I, we have worked together 
and you've had issues in your life. And the way that we have gotten through those issues is a simple little thing that works so well. Remember I've given you those little three-by-five cards and whatever your particular problem was? Remember? Many of you have been through them. And on those three-by-five cards, we get verses that, that absolutely gave to you exactly what you needed to get through your problem. Now, obviously, sweetheart, the lady here that was the axe murderer, we had a tough time getting your verses, but we found some. See, we found some. What do you do? You put them in your pocket. When you, when you get an urge or you start to have this thing come out of its box, you start to struggle with this thing, you take those principles out and you go through them. I actually had a number of people in life stop smoking that way. They always carry their cigarettes in their pockets, and they're always just getting out there and having a cigarette. I told them, throw your cigarettes away, put those cards in your pocket, and every time you reach for a cigarette when they're not there anymore, pull out the cards and deal with it. You know what? After a period of time, that'll, that'll fix the problem for you. That'll fix the problem for you. You know why you won't do it? Because deep down inside, you really don't want to quit. That's why. That's why. You really don't want to quit. And we want to blame it on everybody else or blame it on this or blame it on that. But the bottom line is, the Bible says, sin has no more dominion over you. There is nothing in your life, once you're a child of God, that you can't overcome if you drill in the right place. Drill in the right place. You either drill or you make all the excuses that we make for not drilling. But it's just that simple. Now, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you four steps here to understanding this concept of dead in Christ. I'm going to give you four steps. And these verses, if you really want to overcome things in your life, you get start with these verses and put them on a three-by-five card and maybe uh, put them in your purse, put them in your shirt pocket, carry them with you, and you want to begin to put the things of God in your life and understand this great concept of spiritual death in Christ's death on the cross to your spiritual death in Christ that you are dead to this world. These are the verses. First one come to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians chapter 2, verse and maybe you just want to listen and you can look them up later. That would be fine too. It doesn't make any difference. Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, I think we're what we want. And here's what it says. He, Paul speaking here, he says, for I, though, for I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. Now you see that? He says, for though the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for So that is a powerful verse. That verse, notice how it goes back to the cross. I'm crucified with Christ. No, you're not. Nobody ever took you out and nailed you on a cross. But yes, you are. You're crucified with his death on the cross. When you recognize that his death on the cross was your death on the cross and his coming out of that tomb was you being able to die to the things of this world and you realize that you are crucified just like he is. And the life that you now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. All right, step number one. You want the first step? You want the first step in getting the victorious Christian life? Here it is. Right there. Recognize, recognize that you have an old sin nature and a new nature. Recognize that you have a, an old man and a new man. Recognize that before you were saved, you were stuck to a corpse. After you're saved, you are still stuck 
with a corpse. You're not stuck to it anymore, but you're dragging it around all day long. This is the process. This is step number one. You know why some of you young people get struggle? I'll tell you the truth. You know why some of you young people struggle? I'll tell you why. You struggle because you get saved. And because either you don't recognize or you don't listen or whatever the point, I don't know. You still keep things in your life that are not conducive to being a child of God. You get saved, you buy you the right Bible, and you come to church. But all week long, you listen to the most ungodly music the world has ever heard. And then you listen to that and you feed. Now, let me ask you a question. You take ungodly, worldly music and feed it into your Christian life. Where is it going to go? Is it going to go to your soul or is it going to go to your flesh? Well, if you're saved, it ain't going to your soul. It's going to go right into your flesh. So then you wonder why you have struggles. You wonder why you can't get above the circumstances. You wonder why you can't get victory in your life when the answer is so simple. you got an old nature over here and a new nature over here, and you come to church, you carry your Bible, you're listening to what I'm saying, and it's going into the good side, but when you leave out of here, you put those headphones on, or you plug in this, or you go home, or you put this on TV, it's going to feed the bad side, and then you're going to wonder there why, why do I have problems? It's who you're feeding. You can't feed God's nature and the new nature one day and the devil the next. That's step one. you got to realize that when you get saved, hey, kid, there's some things that just have to go. And if they don't go, you're not going anywhere. You're feeding that old nature, and that old nature is going to continually give you and give you and give you problems. Most of you know this story. Uh, maybe you younger kids don't. Uh, it's a great classic story. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now here's a guy that was a scientist, a doctor. And he concocted this theory that man had a beast living inside him. Well, how quaint. <laughs> that came out about 2008, 200 A.D. And he's down there and he says, and he, he can, gets this medicine or this drink that he gets. And when he drinks it, it changes him from the good guy, Dr. Jekyll, to the bad guy, Mr. Hyde. And he goes through life during the day. He's nice. He's kind. He's the, everybody loves him. He helps people who are less fortunate than themselves. He denies nobody medical attention. He's the kind, dresses nice, has a nice house, walks around. He's nice people. He's the cream in the, of society. He walks around. Everybody knows him. He carries a, wears a top hat, carries a cane, has a nice suit with a white starch shirt, and he walks around all the places, and everybody knows him as the wonderful Dr. Jekyll. Ah, but at nighttime, sneaks down in the basement to his little laboratory. Makes a little concoction and he drinks that thing and then the lights go out and they shake and the room thing and things break and bottle lights are knocked out and then he comes up and now he's the disfigured, horrible Mr. Hyde. Now he goes out in the night. What does he do? What does he do? All the wicked things that Mr. Dr. Jekyll would never think about doing. What does he do? Oh, he runs the back alleys. What does he do? Oh, he, he does this. He captivates people. He makes people. He makes fun of people. He hurts people. He does all the things that the, that the Mr. Hyde does. And then in the morning, oh, he wakes up with a terrible hangover. Sound familiar? With a terrible hangover. He looks in the mirror and he's back to Dr. Jekyll. But oh, only for a short time. Don't, be, don't give up. Tonight, he'll be back to Mr. Hyde. That's your life and my life. Without the, without the drink. Well, in some of your cases with the drink. That's, that's us. That's a Christian. You got two natures, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
And whichever one you feed is what you're going to be. That's why some of you right now today sitting in here, you're Dr. Jekyll. Got your Bible. You look nice. You're sober. You got it all together. And now you're looking great. And I'll, when, I, when you say goodbye to me, I'll say to you, good to have you here, Dr. Jekyll. It's good to see you. Oh, thank you. Yes, it was a wonderful sermon. Yes, you really touched my heart. Yes, you really good. But tonight, tomorrow night, last night, Mr. Hyde, see how it works? See how it works? It's exactly how it works. We have in society today in counseling what they call bipolar. Bipolar is the fact in, uh, uh, that, you know, that you, you become, uh, in a simple, simplistic form, it's a thing where you have the ability to be, have two natures, two people. And, uh, you know, you, 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 you're coherent for a while, and you walk around, and you, you talk, and normal, and then, uh, you know, sometimes you wake up, and you're, you're off, the, off the planet someplace. And uh, they, they designate that as, well, <clears throat> that person has bipolar. Well, I got some new, well, you know, Bipolar. I got some news for you. I got some terrible, shocking news for you. Every born-again child of God is bipolar. You got an old nature, a new nature inside you the moment you get saved. You see, the physical, the, the therapy world, the counseling world, they never figured that out. Now, if you're unsaved and you got two natures, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later. If you're unsaved and you got two personalities, well, we can cover that under uh, when we get some holy water and some silver bullets and a cross. If you're unsaved and you're two people, you know, talk to somebody else. Don't bother talking to me. But if you are saved and you struggle with a depression side and a good side and you go back and forth, I'll tell you right now, you don't need Prozac, you need Bible Zach. Or just Zach. <laughs> Take two Zach and call you in the morning. He'll fix you. That's what you need. You, you gotta, you, you've been hanging out with the old crowd, the old nature. That's all you're feeding. I had a lady come into me, you know, and she's she been out in the world for I don't know how long. Same woman. She came into me and she says, I, I, I went to see a psychiatrist and a therapist. And, he, he, and I said, what did you do that for? And she says, well, she says, I'm, I said, you're a Christian, aren't you? She says, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm just, I'm just so depressed. And I said, lady, hey, lady, my God, you got a bad marriage, bad kids, you're an alcoholic, you do drugs. I'm depressed just talking to you about it. People do these things in their life and then scratch their head and say, why am I depressed? If you're saved, the Holy Spirit of God is living inside you. And every time you feed the old nature versus the new nature, you grieve him. And if you think that grieving the Holy Spirit of God does not produce physical ailments and problems, you don't know much about life in the Bible. So you go pay some idiot $250 an hour to tell you what any five-year-old could figure out reading that book that you could bid at, at, at Walmart for $2.99 and figure out what your problem is. You are bipolar if you are saved. You got an old nature and you got a new nature. And it's just simple. What do you think Paul did in the New Testament times? Who was his therapist? When the Waldensians and the Albigensians went through their great persecution, were they all on Prozac? What got them through? The same thing that will get you through, except they understood it and we don't. We don't realize that you don't have to take anything to have the victory if you're saved in your life except the Word of God. You get your system cleaned out and get that book and start making those 
principles work for you? Somebody says, I can't do that. Well, let me just tell you, there is a chance that you have messed yourself up so bad in the world that we live in that you just can't hold on to truth. But the bottom line is this. If there's anything else in this world that can fix you better than that book, bring me some. I'm as bipolar as you are. You think preachers aren't bipolar? I'm bipolar. I've been in the North Pole and the South Pole. I've been there. Got postcards and t-shirts to prove it. I'm bipolar. You're bipolar if you're saved. You got an old nature and a new nature, and it's simply this. Whichever one you feed is going to run you. And you need to realize that I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That's where it's at. That's the first step. Recognize who you are. Second step. Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, one hand. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 in the other. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why as though living in the world are you subject to the ordinances? Now that's a great. You know what that says in basic? It says this. You're in this world, but you're no longer of this world. This basically says if you're really a Christian, why is this world having its effect on you? Really? If you're a child of God, really, and you've got the power of God in your life, really, what in the world are you doing fooling around with the rudiments? You know what rudiments is? Rudiments is the very basic things of any substance. You see, it's not the big things that mess you and I up in the world. It's staying with the rudiments, the basic thing that will entangle you. Then look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Here it comes. Step 2. If ye then, being risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not the things of this earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. All right? Second step. First step was to recognize who you are. You've got an old nature and you've got a new nature. Feeding the old one will make you Dr. Uh, uh, Mr. High. Feeding the new one will make you Dr. Jekyll. What's step two? Once you understand that, what is the second thing you do? Look at it. Chapter 3, verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, that's you and me, seek those things. Look at verse 2. Set your affections. Then step 2 is to seek and to set. You seek the things that are God, not the things of the world. You get into a church. You get what you need. You get the help that you need. You get into your Bible. You make your 3 by 5 cards. You attack the problem. You designate the problem. I'm bipolar. I got an old nature and a new nature. All right. Then you crucify every day the old man. Don't give him the advantage. Get in the book. Seek. 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 Find out everything you can. And then once you get the Bible, you set your affections on things above. You know what a part of the problem is? All of us are have the guilty of that. We love things down here more than we love things up there. That's our basic problem. And you know how human nature is. We go with what we love. There are some things in your life, kids, that when you get saved, have to go. And if they don't go, you're going to struggle the rest of your life. It's just how bad you want it. You've got to replace the rudiments of this world with the things of God. The Bible says you're dead and your life would hid with Christ in God. All right, third step. 
Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 of them here. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 31. 2 Timothy says this. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. Oh, what a great verse. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live under under righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. And look at 1 Corinthians 15, 31. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. You know what step three is? You have to die daily. Where do you get this idea that you don't have to monitor your relationship with God 24-7? Where do you get the idea that you're not in a warfare and you've got to stand your watch 24-7 in your life? You know what I have to do for some of you young Christians? And some of you don't appreciate it. But what I have to do right now in, in your young your Christian life, I have to watch for you. Because a lot of you don't know what to look out for. And I'll tell you, you know what? You need to get this person out of your life. You better not hang out with this person. or better do this, do that, do that. Some of you say, okay. Some of you say, well, I don't know if I like that or not. Hey, you know what? All I'm doing is what you need to learn to do in your life. Because there's some things out there that will hurt you. And you're not strong enough or smart enough in the Bible yet, no offense, to see it. To see it. You just can't. You have to die daily. You have to keep vigilant. You have to never lose your edge. You know the hardest job for me, I think, would be for a person to have would be a policeman's job. And I've known many policemen. We have one in our church here who's probably one of my best friends in the whole wide world and, and I love him more than I can ever say. And we spend a lot of time talking together. And, uh, and, you know, and, I, and I pray for him every day because I know what a tough job being a police officer has. Because you know how tough it is? You know, when you go through police officer training, they train you how to walk up on a car. You ever notice when you get stopped at night how the guy puts the spotlight right in where you can't see? Because he, he doesn't want you looking around and seeing where, where he's coming from because you might have a gun. So if they stop you at night, you know, he puts that spotlight right on you. And you're, all you do is hear these crunchy footsteps on the, you're saying, I hope it's a policeman, you know, and you hear these crunchy footsteps as he comes up, and before you know it, he's over your shoulder. He's doing that to give him the advantage. You know why? Because he walks up in a car, and you, got a, you just robbed a 7-Eleven or whatever, and you got a gun, and it's at nighttime, he walks up thinking you're a traffic stop, and he gets a face full of lead. So he puts it on his advantage. But you know, that's got to be tough. You know how a police officer gets shot and killed? I'll tell you how. He loses his edge. You know how you lose your edge? You make 50 car stops and they're all boring and mow up. Grandma, little girls, little kids, young guys, and you feel, and after 50 car stops, you lose that edge of staying on top all the time. And you know what? The 51st one's the one you get killed in. You go through 50 that are boring, and then you go to the 51st. This guy just raped somebody, just killed somebody. He's running a fleeing felon. You don't know it. He knows it, and you just had 50 car stops where it was grandmas, soccer moms, dads going home from work, kids going home from school, no big deal, and it's the end of your shift, you're tired, and you just got one more, and you're focusing on going home and seeing your kids, and you walk up, and it ends right there with a blast in your face. You know why? Because the 51st one got you. It's hard to keep your guard up all that time. It's tough. It's tough for you and for me. It would be different if people were chasing us, shooting at us. It would be different if we were all down on the floor with the lights off and I was talking to you. And when we left here, there were people hunting us out here. And we had to go out in three or four. 
and I, would, and I wanted to go to my car and to get to my car, and I know that they were out there. So I picked three or four of you, and I said, look, you go this way, and while they're shooting you, I'll get into my car and go. That'd be tough. <laughs> After about four or five weeks, wouldn't have any let buddy at church. But if you go out here and there's shots ringing over your head and somebody's chasing you down the street, you know what? You, it's easier to stay on top of everything when somebody is constantly after you than it is when you just get lulled into a false sense of security. And then that's when you get it. That's what happens to God's people. Most of God's people don't even know they're in a war. They don't understand that this thing is a constant thing. They don't understand that they have to die daily. You can never lose your vigilance. You have to stay on guard 24-7. That's hard. You have to every day of your life, in the morning, during the afternoon, you have to remind yourself that you were dead, you were crucified, that you, have, you, are, you die daily. Step number four. I get these on cards, guys. You do what you want to do. Step number four. Romans chapter 6, verses 6 through 12. Knowing this, that our old man, there it is, is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth, look at this, we should not serve. You don't have to serve sin this morning. Sin has no more dominion over you unless you would allow it in your life because you won't follow the steps and recognize you're dead and your life is hid with Christ. Look at verse 7. For he that is dead, there's dead in Christ, is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise, now here comes the, this is it, this is the key place right here. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin, therefore, because what I just said, reign in your mortal bodies that you should serve the lust thereof. You know what he said? He said the key word is reckon. That word is only used two times in your Bible. You know what the word in Greek means for reckon? It means reckon. <laughs> After last Thursday night, I question, I thought I'd throw that in there to you. Reckon. Step four is to reckon yourself dead in the flesh but alive unto Christ. Now, what does the word reckon mean? It's only found two times in the Bible. It's found here in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, when it deals with the sufferings of this present time. But the word reckon means to reason or argue within yourself and come to a conclusion and convince yourself of the fact that you are now what you are reckoning yourself to be. You find a great example of this in Psalms. This is David, the man after God's own heart, speaking to himself and reckoning to himself through Psalms who God and what God's word is in his life. Reckoning yourself dead simply means you have taken the Bible. You have taken the steps. You've studied it out. You know about your old nature and the new nature. You understand what happened to you the day you got saved. You understand all the things that go along with it. You realize you were bipolar. You realize you have to feed one or the other. And then you reckon to yourself. You, reckon, you, you reason it out. You come to the conclusion, I am going to, I'm going to reckon myself dead. You fight that thing. You come to the point where you say, I'm not dead giving in to the flesh. 
I told my girls when they were growing up, when they were little kids, we told them, stay away from strangers, don't talk to strangers. And somebody comes up and offers you candy or offers you this or that or wants to show you their puppy or whatever the case, run to the nearest adult. When they got older, and I used to worry about this when they were still do to some degree, but I used to worry about it when, when they were single and they'd be out driving around and still now that they're married, they go to work and they, they don't, you know, in places and I, I still pray for them in those situations. But I've always told them this. Remember the little gal over there in, uh, in Overland Park, the, uh, the, the, the guy abducted her from the Target parking lot? I've always told my girls this. You know, I know, I know the fear. And maybe this will be good advice for you. I've always told my kids this. If a guy comes up to you out in a parking lot or you're getting in from work in your car and you're somewhere in the public and a guy comes up with a knife or a guy comes up with a gun and pulls it on you and says, get in your car or get in my car, let me tell you something. If you get in his car, you are dead. If you get in the car, you are dead. It won't be maybe. It won't be, well, I just want to rape you and then I'll let you go. If you get in the car, girls, you're dead. You're dead. D-E-A-D. You're dead. So don't get in the car. You got a better chance in the parking lot if he shoots you and he kills you. I don't know what to tell you, but you got a better chance there than you do if you get in the car. Because in the car, you have no chance unless you're certified to carry concealed weapon. And then I'd get in the car, act scared, and then roll it out and let him have it. And before I'd pull the trigger, I'd back up like you would do. And I would say to him, do you know what the last thing that goes through your mind is going to be? And he said, no, what? The front of your face. <laughs> But obviously, we don't always have the concealed carry. You got it with you today? You do, don't you, huh? Fire a couple of rounds up in the ceiling. I want to see you. I'll bet you do. You got my back, don't you, huh? Somebody come in right now and said, I'm going to kill you. They'd be dead before they hit the front, wouldn't they, huh? You a good shot? I believe you. But don't get nervous if I duck down behind these three people up here in the front. <laughs> I tell them, don't get in the car. Don't get in the car. Don't give in. You may die. But you know what? Choose how you die. You may kill me, but I will choose how I die. You won't put me in a position where you take it. If I give it up, it'll be my choice. You won't. I will not allow you to put me in a position where I don't have that choice. I'm not afraid of dying, and if I have to die, I'll die. But I will not allow somebody else to dictate how I die. I will choose on my ground. You got a better chance in the parking lot than you do. You get in the car, you're dead. My point is this. When the old flesh comes to you, follow the same procedure. Fight. Don't get in this car. Don't give in to it. Don't be swayed. Don't be afraid. Don't let him intimidate you. When the old flesh starts to come out of its box and starts to give you a problem, don't get in this car. Run. Bible says, Paul told Timothy, flee youthful rust. When Joseph was faced with Potiphar's wife, he ran. Stand up. Reckon yourself dead. 
Say to the flesh, you're not going to control me. I'm not going to get in your car. You want to kill me? Kill me now. But by the way, you can't. I'm already dead and my life is hid with Christ. That's the number one problem we all face and we all have. We can talk about all of the things about the spiritual life, the new man and the old man, but it comes down to this. Until you reckon yourself to be dead and you convince yourself through the scriptures, get those little principles on a three-by-five card and understand you are above sin. You don't have to let it have dominion over you. You can live above it and you can have the victorious Christian life. I'm not saying your life's going to be perfect. I'm not going to say you won't make some mistakes. I'm saying you will not be in bondage to sin. You control yourself. It will not control you. Look at verse 12. And here's the real great part of that verse. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. There's the word right there. Who's reigning as king in your life this morning? Who's reigning? The great concept that now that you're saved, you have the power to overcome sin. It does not have dominion over you unless you allow it. And the key is understanding these principles, putting these verses in your Bible, in your heart, in your life, no matter how you got to do it, and realize that there lies the key to the victorious Christian life. One last thing and I'm done. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. And you want to get this one down. Don't lose this one. Don't lose this one. That I may know him, power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. Here it comes, being made conformable unto his death. Now that's one of the greatest verses in the Bible that show you and I the process. That I may know him, that's the day you got saved. And the power of his resurrection, that's the power of God being unleashed in your life. The fellowship of his suffering, that is the things in your life that God allows that are not good but are bad to keep you and I balanced out in life. We talked about it, rejoicing in your tribulations a couple of weeks ago. That here's the word, here's the verse. Being made conformable unto his death. Two aspects in a child of God's life. We have to understand it and they have to do with the victory we're talking about today. Two aspects to the concept of reckoning yourself dead. And my, my, I hope you never forget that word after today. I hope God burns it into your soul, into your mind. The word reckon. The word reckon. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. It says, I beseech you therefore by the mercy of God to present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. Two words. Understand reckoning. First word is transformed. You transform your mind. You transform your mind. What does that mean? Transformation of your mind changes how you think. Transformation of your mind changes how you think. You start thinking the principles of the Word of God. Now this verse here, Philippians 3.10, being made conformable unto his death. Once you transform your mind, then you have the ability to conform your life. You see, you transform your mind, but you have to conform your life. You can't conform your life to what God's death is until you first transform your mind. You have to see that. And there lies the real key and secret to the word reckoning. Reckoning is a process by which through the word of God you first transform your mind and then you have the ability to conform your body into his, unto his death. 
And when you do that, you now reckon yourself to be dead and sin has no more dominion over you. Recognizing and understanding what this death on the cross means to you and I in our spiritual death. Three types of death. Go out of here with that. Physical death. <clears throat> You're all going to die. I'm going to die. We're going to be buried in the ground. Spiritual death. Unsaved man or woman. Separated from God. Romans 6, 23. Wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. And then you have the death of a Christian in relationship to Christ's death on the cross. And you and I, even though we're alive in the flesh, we're dead to the world and alive in Christ Jesus. Old nature, new nature, through the process of reckoning. Reckoning. Well, let's hold up there and we'll have prayer and we'll be out of here. Now, let me just say to you again, I hope if I can help you with this at all, you come over and see me and I'll take the time to work it out. I hope it was pretty self-explanatory. If you need to get some cards in your life and you need to get some things that will help you get where you need to be, you come and see me. I'll work with you. If you need people to help you in your life, you need a support group, whatever you need, I'll put those things in your life to help you get everything that you need to help you get where God wants you to be. Uh, let's have prayer. Don't forget.